This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. Now that Jeff Sessions has been confirmed as the new Attorney General of the United States, many Americans are wondering exactly how the Department of Justice will function under his leadership and what policy changes may be on the horizon. Of particular concern to advocates of civil rights is criminal justice reform and reentry after incarceration, commonly known as life after lockup. Cities around the country, including right here in Atlanta, face a myriad of issues posed by prisoner reentry because those who are affected beyond the former prisoner, women and children. My guest is Flores Forbes. He was once a Black Panther. He was once incarcerated. He is now an Associate Vice President of Strategic Policy and Program Implementation at Columbia University. His book, Invisible Men, illustrates what criminal justice reform can and should look like when returning citizens are given the tools, the resources, and the opportunities they should get upon release. Mr. Forbes, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to go way back in the history of your time because of the setup. The listeners are going to wonder, how does somebody go from being a Black Panther in prison to a VP at Columbia University? Well, I while I was in prison, I um, had a plan. I developed a plan. I read Think, uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and came up with a plan that I was going to uh, go back to college, get my master's degree in urban planning and become an urban planner. And uh, that way I could continue to help my people. The Black Panther Party was pretty much over with at that point. And so I, um, you know, finished college. Uh, it was very difficult once, you know, when you get out. You know, I had to fight a lot of obstacles. The, the box, which makes you declare whether you've been convicted of a felony or not. And I went back to graduate school. And uh, through my journey, I developed a pretty good uh, social and political network with I I think is very important. And I've been a um, practicing urban planner for over 25 years now. Outstanding. And as, of course, as we've told the listeners, you are also an author. I did not give them the the subtitle of Invisible Men, but tell us a little bit about what this book is about. Okay, Invisible Men, the Invisible Men, it's a a riff on the Ralph Ellison uh, book, Invisible Man, Mm -hmm. where he looked at the issue of black people being invisible to American society. And my thesis is basically that most black men who get out of prison and in their attempt to become successful usually have to hide for a certain amount of time, thus therefore making themselves invisible. And um, so I had to do that. You know, I was pretty much invisible for 15 years. What do you mean by hide? Uh, I mean, you know, you 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 deceive people. You know, you're not necessarily telling the truth about your background. Um, there are many jobs that you apply for where you check no on the box that asks you whether you've been convicted of a felony, and then you usually become you know you try to become job smart and figure out which companies are not doing background checks. 
No, and how how does one assess that? <laughs> you, you can, it's not That's the that, trick of the trade, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there are nonprofits that, that may not who have a little more social responsibility. Um, I eventually was able to, uh, you know, but what happened, developing my social network, I was recruited by the city of New York. And the uh, Manhattan Borough President, C. Virginia Fields, um, was a uh, strong civil rights believer. She had marched with Martin Luther King, and she felt that since I was qualified, I deserved a second chance. So I had to go through a background check when I became a uh, city planner for New York City. And I was able to, to clear it, basically. You know. Awesome. I, I, of course, in the setup for our conversation and introduce the audience to your book, needed to introduce your background. But have you gotten to the point 25 years post-incarceration, as successful as you are as a, an associate VP at Columbia University, have you reached the point in your career where you no longer have to discuss your background unless you want to dis- discuss your background? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, at Columbia University, we have quite a few programs that are focusing on the returning citizens. We have maybe 30 or 40 uh, formerly incarcerated people who are matriculating through the university through programs that we have. We teach in three different prisons in New York State. And we're, we're one of maybe 200, couple of hundred universities around the country that are developing models to help uh, people reenter. And education is one of the major components of that. So, no, I, I really don't, you know, I, I talk about it now because I'm pretty much, um, for lack of a better way to put it, coming out, which I actually did 15 years ago uh, when I, I published my, my first book. Um, it's called Will You Die With Me? My Life in the Black Panther Party. And that was basically, I basically wrote that because I had 18 years of experience that I couldn't put on a resume. So I needed a way to document the skills and the experiences that I had during my time in the Black Panther Party as a fugitive and uh, even in the uh, in, pr- in prison. Three years on the run before you surrendered to authorities and did your time. How do you do that? How do you stay underground and off the grid and not in jail in that that time? Uh, well, I was I, I, I was part of the military arm of the Black Panther Party, and I was trained. You know, we were uh, very familiar with the uh, urban guerrilla warfare tactics, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, in terms of getting a new ID, we had networks throughout the uh, United States. Uh, many of them, were, we were assisted by uh, what we used to call mother country radicals who were white people who believed in uh, what was going on and what we were doing. And um, so, you know, it was, it was a network that I actually, I, I detail it somewhat in the first book. Mm-hmm. And then I don't detail it that much because there are still people who were very helpful that you don't want to incriminate. Understand. What concerns you about the appointment of Jeff Sessions as the, the new attorney general? Well, well the thing is, is, it's not so much the appointment of Jeff Sessions. The, the biggest issue is that we need to educate people to the fact that the criminal justice system in this country was pretty much set uh, in the early 18, in the late 18th century when Thomas Jefferson started looking at how do you, how do we emancipate slaves and not have them harm us. And he was one of the first people that came up with the 
concept of the exception clause, which is in the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which basically makes you a slave if you're convicted of a crime in this country. And he was also someone who developed this, this, this understanding with other legislators as they were looking at developing the Missouri Compromise and that sort of thing. So in 1865, when the uh, 13th Amendment was being uh, ratified, the exception clause was this loophole. It was the compromise. And it's the thing that began the development of criminalizing black people in this country. Okay, so this is something that's been going on for a couple of hundred years. Jeff Sessions is only dealing with, he only really deals with federal prisons, which are not a large portion. The major aspect of the, you know, what I may call the new slavery within the criminal justice system or within all these different state departments of corrections are controlled by the states. When I was working in a furniture factory in San Quentin, I was paid 15 cents an hour. The chairs that I made were sold to the state of California, the University of California, for $400, $500 a piece. Okay, and then I was given... Um, when I left, when I was released, I was given nothing. I was given $200 and a pat on the back. But as an individual, it's it's been shown, data shows that as an individual in California, you're, you're earning for the state of California somewhere in there a little less than $50,000 a year. But when you release, you get nothing. So that's kind of the beginning of the recidivism, which is the people returning to prison. You know, the recidivism rate's like 70%. Yeah. So only 30% of the people are making it. When you're released from prison and you have nothing, you know, because there is no reentry industry. You know, there's a few things that go on. I, I was lucky. You know, I worked hard, developed a great network, and had time, bought myself time to maneuver and to remove the stigma of incarceration. You know, because many ways, I mean, I'm, I'm like a fugitive slave when I get out. Mm. You know, I might get my parole revoked. You know what I'm saying? So so I think it's very, very complex, and I think it's, it's in many ways kind of deceptive to think that Jeff Sessions, I mean, the system's already in place. You know, he may do a few things. He said, well, they're going to begin their relationship with private prisons anymore. Well, private prisons also have a relationship with state prisons. You know, so it, it's, you know, and, 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 that, and that revenue generation is a state economic development entity. You know, where I think across the United States, state prison industries are, are generating something like $2 billion in income. So you're saying that black men are in locked up for profit? Yeah. Yeah. That's not right. No, it's not. It's absolutely not right. I mean, you know, and then you have no opportunity coming out. I mean, and so until that equation is balanced out. If you're spending sixty, seventy thousand dollars to keep me in prison, I should get something when I get out for at least up to five years. Research shows that if you're out of prison for at least five years, you're not going to go back. So if I have some assistance for up to five years, and then it ends, very similar to the welfare to work program that Clinton uh, developed. After that five years, what happens? I become a consumer. I'm part of the gross domestic product in terms of my spending. I begin to pay taxes. So that investment basically in me returning 
is going to basically, you know, you, we're going to break even at some point, and then you're going to start making a profit off me as a citizen. Why do you think, Mr. Forbes, there is such resistance to adopting such a policy that would provide support for returning citizens for a finite period of time until such time as that person can, as you say, become a taxpaying, contributing member of society and not caught up in that recidivism rate? Well, that's a conversation that needs to happen with the governors of the, of the, of the 50 states in the United States. They know this. Governors control the departments of corrections. They understand that the legislatures in the states, they understand, they know this. They see the budgets. They see the revenue, the profits and the loss and that sort of thing, you know. And, you know, I mean, are they short-sighted? I mean, you know, the uh, former secretary of the uh, Treasury, Robert Rubin, he made a speech at San Quentin, and he was asked by an inmate, he said, look, um, I was in prison for 18 years. You know, they spent $60,000 to keep me in prison each year. When I get out, I got nothing. You know, and Robert Rubin, who is a titan of Wall Street, he's, you know, he's shocked. You know, this was just a couple of years ago. So I think one thing, I think there needs to be some education in terms of letting people know that when they start talking about criminal justice reform, or reducing, when someone says they want to reduce the prison population by 50%, that's a joke. There's no way I'm going to believe that until you have a balanced out reentry industrial complex where you're really assisting people when they get out of prison. How can policymakers, and you talk about talking to the governors of all mm -hmm. 50 states and people who make those decisions control the correction system, how can those folks help reintegrate these returning citizens in ways that might perhaps benefit public safety going from so-called wrong side of the law to the right side of the law? Right. I, you know, I, and I, I think that when, if it's an issue of saving money or public safety, then there's a problem. What about human rights? You know, what about you know, I don't want to be a slave anymore. Don't send me back there because I have not been able to adjust into society because I don't have any opportunities. So I think that there's an issue of education with regards to the government. Now, they know it, or maybe it's educating the people who vote for them. So I think that there are different ways that you can come at this, but I believe that the conversation is, is, is it's not in the airways. You know, it's not in the in the hallways of, of uh, Congress, nor is it in the state houses yet. But I think that something like that needs to happen. There needs to be this discussion. I mean, I have a proposal in the back of my book which talks about that, you know, because right now, you know, there's over 70 million people in this country have felony convictions who are not in prison, you know. So they basically should become a special interest group. Because they all are going to, you know, they all have to deal with the same issues. You know, if you did something like AARP and all those people became part of this, this effort of, uh, you know, donating, say, $5 a month into this pool, you know, to develop these resources. Because there's no lobbying arm. There's no lobbying that goes on that assists people who are formerly incarcerated. Yeah, you're right There's only that. lobbying. The largest, one of the largest lobbies is the... Uh, uh, the guard, prison guards union, you know, and it's not just about them. But if, if, if there was a, if, if the population 
if the recidivism rate, say, was reduced to 40%, 50%, what happens? That affects the economic development opportunities in those places where you have prisons at. So, so I think that there's an issue of are you choosing, what is it, between, it's almost like guns and butter. We're talking to Flores Forbes, he, uh, former Black Panther, now the Associate Vice President of Strategic Policy and Program Implementation at Columbia up in New York. His book is Invisible Men. We're talking about criminal justice reform and what can be done to make it easier for returning citizens to become reintegrated into society. Where are we on the, the whole block the box movement so that applicants are no longer forced to do as you had to or not truthfully check whether or not you've been convicted of crime. I mean, there's a lot of progress in terms of that, but 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 I really don't believe it's just the box. It's about the hiring manager. You know, when I got a job at the city of New York, I checked yes on the box. There was nothing, had nothing to do with me being able to check no. The fact that I was qualified and the fact that the hiring manager, who was the borough president, wanted to give me a second chance. Yeah. That was because she was an educated and enlightened African-American woman. When I was recruited to Columbia University, I had I checked the box, yes. But because I was qualified and in, there were other enlightened people there, that was never an issue. So I think it really has more to do with educating the hiring managers, educating the population. You know, I mean, I mean, George, even George W. Bush said in 2004 in his State of the Union that when a person gets out of prison, they deserve the same opportunity everyone else deserves in this country. And by creating those programs for education, educating people who are hiring managers and creating a, a system where there is more forgiveness upon the release of a first time offender, you argue that keeps that person from becoming a repeat offender, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, at, at, at Columbia University, we're, we're educating the faculty there. When they see someone come into their classroom who's formerly incarcerated and that person outperforms one of their very highly qualified Ivy League students, you know, they be, they begin to change their mind. And one of it, one, it's not an experiment that we're looking to do, is that the Columbia Business School is like one of the top business schools in the world. I think it just came out we were in the top 10. We're going to be sending students, MBA students, into prisons to teach financial literacy, negotiation, and entrepreneurship. Now, we hope that, what, that these students are impressed enough that when they become the new titans of industry, they will realize, you know what, I'm removing the box and I'm going to instruct my hiring managers to make sure that you give everybody a level playing field, regardless of what your background is. How important is it for incarcerated citizens to have family support at the moment that they are reentering society? And how was what was that situation for you? It was major. I mean, I had support from my uh, immediate family, from my girlfriend. I mean, I mean, you have to have support. You know, you have to have support. That, and I think that that's important, and I think it impresses upon the people who are, you know, that, that as you move through the system and you look for a job and you do other things, I think that it's very important that you have that family support. And it's, it's important for you, especially. Especially when you, the, the, you know, one of the major pieces of removing the external stigma 
is when you realize the internal stigma that affects you. That's post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, you've been in a close quarter situation in prison for some people for many years, some people for a few years. That is going to affect you. It's very dangerous in prison. People get killed. People can get maimed. So when you get out of that situation, it's almost like you've been in a war. So you're going to need some mental health uh, assistance once you get out also. So what is it that you're wanting readers (coughs) to take away from your book? That it's a, you know that people can do this, you know that that it can happen, you know that's why you know the 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 tagline on the book is a contemporary slave narrative in the era of mass incarceration, you know if if constitutionally, I am a slave when I go to prison, so here I am, twenty some years later, writing my slave narrative, mm. talking about how I made it through the system and that I'm a nice person, and that there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of other nice people, once they get an opportunity, once they re-enter society, you know, that they're just like everybody else. What would be your call to action for enlightened citizens, educated listeners, people who hear your message, understand that something better can and should be done, and I should note Georgia's governor is is likely to uh, leave and wants to leave as his legacy uh, significant criminal justice reform here in this state. What is that call to action? Well, I think one of the first things that needs people, we need to realize that the confirmation of people as unwanted and slaves in this country is in the 13th Amendment. So I'm working with other academics and I'm working with other uh, formerly incarcerated professionals. We're developing a uh, program. We want to have, we're going to have a, a conference in uh, December to look at amending the 13th Amendment. I think that needs to be a discussion because that's where it begins at. Because if you have a right not to pay me when I go to prison and that right extends to when I'm released, I think that by amending the exception clause in the 13th Amendment is the best first way to start looking at that conversation. Absolutely. And and on that note, just uh, an opportunity for uh, listeners who have not had an opportunity to see a most impressive documentary by Ava DuVernay that I think is still now on Netflix 13th about the 13th Amendment. That'd be a good right. thing to see and, and educate yourself in, in right. a short amount of time, right? Right. Absolutely. All right. Flores Forbes, urban planner, Columbia University, returning citizen for more than 25 years now, uh, making a difference in uh, your community. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.